This is episode number 577 with Hussein Kasai, co-founder and former CEO of Onfido. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today's guest is the sensationally successful AI entrepreneur, Hussein Kasai. Hussein co-founded the machine learning company Onfido in 2010 while he was an undergraduate student at Oxford and served as Onfido's CEO for 10 years, overseeing $200 million in venture capital raised, the team growing to over 400 employees, and the client base growing to over 1,500 firms. A little bit on Unfido itself, it's a company that enables businesses to digitally onboard users such as Uber with its drivers or Couchsurfing.com with its hosts and its guests. It allows them to onboard these kinds of users more rapidly and safely by using machine learning models that both verify government-issued IDs are legitimate and then compare those IDs to users' faces. Um, In addition to founding that company Onfido, Hussein completed his BA in economics and management from the University of Oxford and served as the full-time president of the Oxford Entrepreneurs Student Society, which is how I got to know him in the first place. Today's episode is non-technical and will appeal to anyone who's interested in hearing tips and tricks for building a billion-dollar AI startup from scratch. In the episode, Hussein details tips for deciding on whether you need co-founders, how to choose your co-founders if you need them, how to find product market fit, how to scale up a company, how to identify startup opportunities, why there's never been a better time than now to found an AI startup, and a behind-the-curtain look at his next startup, which is currently in stealth. All right, you ready for this inspiring episode? Let's go. Hussein, yes, I get to catch up with you, my old friend, on air on the Super Data Science Podcast. This is so exciting. I've been looking forward to this day for a long time. How are you doing, Hussein? Where in the world are you calling in from? I am very well. I'm in Kentish Town, North London, and really, really pleased to be on. Nice. Yeah. The audience is in for a treat today for sure, because, yeah, you're a tremendous person. I always you exude this calmness that I come away from every experience with you feeling like everything in life is great and under control. And so I hope that the audience comes away feeling, uh, (laughs) feeling the same way from this episode and inspired by the things that they can do by scaling up AI applications, um, even a fraction of the scale that you have. Um, So we've known each other for a very long time. Um, I was, at Oxford studying from 2007 to 2012. And um, I started getting involved with the uh, entrepreneurship organization of the university called Oxford Entrepreneurs in 2008. And I served in leadership roles there uh, up until I left the university in 2012. And I did things like, um, I, I was a VP of the organization. And so doing things like interviewing the president. So the president was a pretty cool job that people could have at OE that we'd actually pay you a salary. Typically people would take 
um, a year off, either, you know, uh, take a year, interrupt their studies for a year or take a year between their studies and say launching a business or getting involved in some other kind of uh, commercial opportunity. And so um, in 2008, you started getting involved with Oxford Entrepreneurs as well on the committee. And in 2011, I interviewed you for the president job and you were a shoe in you were president uh, for that year until 2012. And um, I remember not only were you an amazing leader of the organization, but there was a specific day we were in the uh, business school in Oxford and in the front hall. And you were telling me about this idea you had. You'd been applying for uh, different job opportunities and you couldn't believe how much duplication of effort there was. For every job that you applied to, you had to create a new profile. You had to answer new questions. You had to provide the same verification documents over and over again. And so you said to me, John, I think that there's an opportunity here. <laughs> um, and then <laughs> uh, many years and $200 million in capital raised from the likes of TPG, Salesforce, and Microsoft, um, you created, you were the CEO and co-founder of this massive tech startup on Fido um, that started from that idea. So- um, Former CEO, correct. Yes, yes, you were. Uh, and, um, and yeah, so I just, it's so amazing, you know, to, to have you on and you can tell us about that journey from, uh, yeah, from that kernel of an idea to, I remember things like you telling me how, um, you know, the big banks, <laughs> investment banks that were like the kind of job that you thought might appeal to you, um, you know, everybody's working in spreadsheets and you thought there's got to be like, a better way to be working. There's got to be ways to be more efficient. There's got to be opportunities to automate and innovate in the world. And you want it to be part of that. And uh, yeah, so I don't know if you want to just kind of tell us about the beginning of this journey where, you know, you, you were a student, then you became the president of this entrepreneurship organization, and you had this idea, this opportunity, um, and you saw the potential in software and automation and yeah, so what happened? How did you have the um, the courage to take those first steps? It was, so during the time at Oxford Entrepreneurs, I got to, along with sort of some friends, we got to see how the world is changing quite rapidly. And there are an increasing number of tools available that make it a lot easier to start a startup and try out new things. And so we got to see that firsthand. And as you can imagine, there's a there's a bit of excitement that comes with this ability for you and a few friends with some laptops and instant access to build something that has a potential, you know, very, very small likelihood, but has the potential. It is possible for it to, you know, potentially touch everyone in the world or ha have a chance mm -hmm. to scale globally. So with all that excitement, then afterwards going and working uh, at essentially uh, investment banks, me and my two co-founders, uh, we sort of, it was a bit of a dampener in that, you know, sitting behind spreadsheets or, or, or typically not, not using the latest software, even it was Windows 2000 or whatever it may have been. And so 
the first half with the Oxford entrepreneurs introduces to technology and what, what can happen and how the world is completely changing. And then the second half being part of these um, larger corporate environments, it was a bit of an understanding around the culture, the norms and habits that guide, um, you know, constructive um, innovation and teamwork and things of that nature. And we kind of came to the decision that we ought to do a start of ourselves. So we had, I was only, I did like a one week internship. Uh, one of my co-founders did a whole summer internship. And our third co-founder, he actually spent two years at an investment bank um, before he joined full time. So it was wonderful and we learned a lot, but we knew that we wanted to set up a culture where people would very much enjoy coming to work and not lose that like passion and excitement so that they don't need to spend two to three years working on Excel spreadsheets before they're given a chance to do something. They, they can right. join and from pretty early on, they have autonomy and sort of a path to really start making a contribution. Cool. And then so the specific idea behind Onfido that the three of you co-founded, you, Eamon and Rahul, um, I know from something I read online, actually not something that I knew about you personally from before, is that your family had some identity verification challenges when they moved back to England from Iran. So how did that kind of identity verification challenge um, become part of the genesis behind the idea of Onfido? And why is this kind of identity verification challenge important? It was a, so specifically when I turned 10, my parents moved from Iran, they came um, to the UK and they, I just remember, even though I was quite young, they kind of struggled to open a bank account and rent in their own name. So growing up, you know, at, at a young age, I realized how important identity verification is essentially being able to prove that you are who you claim to be um, mm -hmm. and that it's all underpinned for the most part, or it used to be before on Fido and, and uh, sort of our approach, they used to be underpinned by credit bureaus. And then when I looked into the credit bureaus, it's, I kind of saw that this is essentially, these are centralized databases of everyone's date of birth, name and address. And that whole approach is about 150 years old. And right. the, the two main issues are, part of it is that it excludes half the world's adult population who are underbanked or unbanked, or maybe have recently moved to a country and therefore don't have a credit footprint such as in, in my situation, or the other half of the world's population, such as us, where we do have a credit footprint, it is so easy for fraudsters to commit identity fraud and pretend to be you. So all that fast right. and all those sort of uh, unnecessary hoops to jump through um, for this illusion of security, and yet you're not even getting security because it's so easy for fraudsters to cheat it. And that was clear for me and what a fundamental problem we have here. And in parallel, I got quite fortunate in, in working with our technical co-founder in particular to see how machine learning offers a path forward for there to be a superior way to, to verify people or who they claim to be remotely. Super cool. And so part of what allowed Onfido to uh, disintermediate, to uh, to provide a technological solution that this 150-year-old credit footprint industry um, couldn't was AI, was data science. So um, you were able to use machine vision to try to predict whether a given government ID is real or is fake. And then subsequently, you can match the person's face to their ID. 
And so, as you say, this goes beyond, um, you know, just looking at somebody's address, which could easily be falsified. Um, so was that like, how did that come about? How did you realize um, that there was this potential uh, AI driven solution? So we had uh, our technical co-founder, it just so happens that his university thesis was using machine learning to spot wildlife in 20, 25,000 photos of the jungle. Uh, right. And he essentially, he was explaining it to me and he ex explained how, you know, these models can be trained to recognize patterns. And then when you, when you feed it more data, uh, it, it's at first human assisted machine learning and then uh, can, can do it at scale more effectively and so on. So then that's when I started to say, if there were to be a government ID, can you see these patterns? Because this is structured data. And he said, yeah, right. this is like a very obvious thing. I said, if it's so obvious, <laughs> no one's doing it. Uh, that now, it right. really needs, to, if, if, if there were to be a startup that solves this problem, it can solve a global problem that pretty much every human in the, on the planet faces. And that is an ability to verify that they are who they claim to be online in a, in a digital way. And then I went into, and I, re, and I continuously have done, I've got a habit of going on about how uh, much of a broken system we have as far as identity is, is broken and getting worse. And how the credit bureaus are fundamentally predicated and historically have been around exclusion of people. Uh, and whereas this new age um, requires us to rethink it and, and develop a way for, to make it easy for more people to prove that they are who they claim to be and at a much lower cost and a much greater security. Uh, and it, that whole, that whole process in, in sort of going to union in 2008, it's just off the back of the financial crash. Mm -hmm. And so throughout that whole period, all these remodels, all these models were being rethought as well. And that kind of was the early stages of thinking about new fintech and new ways of doing finance. And a big barrier to a new approach to finance beyond sort of traditional incumbents, mainstream banks and others has always been this identity and compliance components. So the need was always there. I mean, it was always broken, at least in our minds, but it was becoming even more painful. And yet um, it was great to see how advances in machine learning were, were able to, it's not necessarily advances in machine learning, it's just um, the affordability of like servers and being able to run models right. and all this to my earlier points around the tools to actually get a system going became so much more accessible and affordable that we could start playing with prototypes. Eliminating unnecessary distractions is one of the central principles of my lifestyle. As such, I only subscribe to a handful of email newsletters, those that provide a massive signal-to-noise ratio. One of the very few that meet my strict criterion is the Data Science Insider. If you weren't aware of it already, the Data Science Insider is a 100% free newsletter that the Super Data Science team creates and sends out every Friday. We pour over all of the news and identify the most important breakthroughs in the fields of data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. The top five, simply five news items. The top five items are handpicked, the items that we're confident will be most relevant to your personal and professional growth. Each of the five articles is summarized into a standardized, easy to read format, and then packed gently into a single email. This means that you don't have to go and read the whole article, you can read our summary and be up to speed on the latest and greatest data innovations in no time at all. 
That said, if any items do particularly tickle your fancy, then you can click through and read the full article. This is what I do. I skim the Data Science Insider newsletter every week. Those items that are relevant to me, I read the summary in full. And if that signals to me that I should be digging into the full original piece, for example, to pour over figures, equations, code, or experimental methodology, I click through and dig deep. So, if you'd like to get the best signal-to-noise ratio out there in data science, machine learning, and AI news, subscribe to the Data Science Insider, which is completely free and no strings attached, at superdatascience.com DSI. That's superdatascience.com DSI. And now, let's return to our amazing episode. Yeah, it was around the time that you guys founded Onfido. It was in 2012 that we had the first deep learning model uh, that became like a worldwide sensation. So we had this AlexNet architecture um, that was this machine vision algorithm that could recognize uh, images and classify them correctly to a much higher degree of accuracy than any other algorithm on the planet. And as you say, the big thing that allowed that to be possible was that compute had become cheap enough, storage had become cheap enough, and the tooling had become available to start to allow us to relatively easily uh, make use of the cloud compute that we need um, to be able to train an algorithm like yours to distinguish whether a government ID is real or fake. Um, and um, yeah, super cool. Amazing that it happened so organically. I mean, how fortuitous <laughs> to have like at that time, um, where because of the financial crisis, people are looking for new kinds of solutions to old problems. Um, machine learning models have just become accessible enough and powerful enough to be doing the kinds of things that uh, you and your co-founders had dreamt up and that you had that expertise that you just, you, you know, you have this, um, this innate pragmatism and commercial acumen that makes you an outstanding CEO. And then you also had someone like Rahul who had this machine vision background. Uh, and so together, yeah, you were able to, to get Onfido off the ground. So what was that like in the beginning? Um, so what was the story around developing the tech versus maybe looking for seed funding from VCs? How did the initial kind of the initial seed stages play out for you? And so, yeah, there, were, there, were, there was a, my third co-founder, Eamon, uh, who also came uh, specifically on the operations and the scaling side. He helped, he helped a lot. So the initial phases were pretty much um, as soon as I graduated. I, dropping out was not an option, and I never even thought about it. I've got like Middle East and that. It just doesn't come into the vocabulary. <laughs> um, so graduated, um, started working on the prototype. My technical co-founder, Rahul, at the time, he had uh, his, his job and he had the mortgage. So I had an agreement with him. We get to our first client. You work evenings and weekends. Um, just help me on the prototype. Let me sign a few clients. When we get funding, when we get paying customers, I need you to commit that you're going to resign and jump on a full time at a much reduced salary. But um, this is at least these are the proof points you'll need. And that we kind of achieved that within a year. And that was perfect because when that happened after that first year, um, our third co-founder, he just finished his exams. And so he was able to join full-time. It was like about a one-year period where the other two part-time had to sort of help uh, evenings and weekends. And it was me full-time. And then uh, mm -hmm. after that first year, the two of them came. And then there were three of us. And 
there were challenges, you know, you look 18, 19. I was told that I look younger than my age at the time. So trying to go, <laughs> trying to go you and did. sell a security, trying, trying to go and sell a security product to, to banks and others when you, you look 15 and yet uh, you're, you're talking about machine learning, which is, you know, wasn't in the discourse or vocabulary at the time. And you, right. you, you essentially go to like someone at a bank and you tell them, by the way, you know, when people come in and like sign up an account, they can do it from home with the smartphone and they'd show their ID and they'd show their face. It, you know, um, it was, it was kind of, it was, it was, it was too wacky for them. It, it wouldn't have worked. So we had to go find people who were of a similar mindset. And that ended up being exactly startups like us. Um, a lot of, again, good timing. We were lucky that it was a rise of the trust marketplaces. So if you want a nanny, right. tutor, doctor, cleaner coming to your house, that whole on-demand wave, then there was a an Uber driver. Precisely. Then you had the mm -hmm. sharing economy. It was called at the time trust marketplace where you're sharing a car with someone like blah, blah, car or sharing a home with someone on, like couch surfing. Then we started to see in 2013, 14, the rise of like the fintechs. Um, so we, we, we were lucky in that right timing for the right customer cohort at the right stage. And then when we started to sell into fintech and financial services, at that point, the scale and the volumes became so high that our models were consistently able to prove scientifically that we are able to catch fakes better than the human eye can. And so mm. at that point, it started to become, it was at early stages, but eventually became exponential. And that, that sort of really, matched very well the growth of the fintechs and in many ways um it's, it's would have been hard to envisage trust marketplace or the fintech ecosystem being as big as it is were it not for tools um such as uh, on fido and similar ones for sure super cool and then so that kind of gets us through the seed stage and finding those initial customers then what was scaling an AI company like this like? What were the easy parts? What were the hard parts? Um, you know, you you went from being based in London and having your team entirely there um, to then making the decision to have a large part of the company in the Bay Area. And so, yeah, these kinds of decisions. Um, yeah, like I said, yeah. what were the easy parts? What were the hard parts? How did you scale this AI company from your first few customers to raising $200 million? So this is just about 2015 where we had a basic product. Uh, it's only fair to say it's called, call it basic. Um, and then, but comparatively there weren't, you know, we we're still strong and better than alternatives, but compared to where we are today, it's, it's, it's fair to say it's quite uh, of a basic version. Um, mm -hmm. We straight away recognized that the US market is the one that you need to win. And we actually invited uh, some of the key investors. Uh, at the time, they were mostly angel investors um, to say, look, you know, we want to do, do this in the US and we need to because this is essentially a race for data. And we right. need to be able to cover more and more IDs globally to build, build the best models because it's not good enough just doing French IDs well and UK, British IDs well. You need to be able to do the Maltese or, or the Indonesian or the Vietnamese and so on and so forth. So we said, we want... Mm -hmm the ability to sign clients that are global. And most of these global companies are based in the US and they don't want to buy from a UK company. They want to buy from a US company. Um, right. And there was pushback. We were kind of told, look, the ballpark number is you have to get to 20 million in revenues before you're, you should consider uh, the US. At the time our revenues was close, this is 2015, it was closer to like 20,000 pounds. 
So there's, there's, a, there's a little bit of a gap. But as it happens, um, most of my family are based in California. And so um, we kind of launched in the US without telling uh, the investors at the time. But, uh, but, but it was a slow start. So 2015 was the first year we tried to launch in the US, had a, the first team of about three people. And then 2016, 2017, 2018, just a very, very difficult path to coming out as a UK startup trying to go through the same issue of like selling a security-based product <laughs> to US institutions. Um, so it took a good three, four years. And it was, it was 2018 when we actually broke, broke, the, uh, broke into the US market and we started to become respected as a scale-up and started to win some of these very large brands uh, as well as ultimately the banks. But it took a long time. It took, took much longer uh, cracking the US than it did even setting up the, the UK. But it was never an option. Like we made it clear to everyone. Like basically, if we were told win the US and lose the rest of the world, or vice versa, without blinking twice, we'd say win the US. Like not winning the US was never uh, really uh, an option. Cool. Um, so, yeah, I mean, incredible, um, incredible journey. Great to hear from you kind of from where you and I left off. And I guess actually that was the last time I think we've seen each other in person was 2012. So now 10 years ago, we've caught up a couple times otherwise since, but um, in person, I think it's been 10 years. We'll have to fix that soon. Um, but amazing to hear from kind of where I left you off your journey to growing this massive company. Um, but you're not the CEO anymore. So um, you have now gone off. Um, maybe you enjoyed... <laughs> some gardening or something for a while. I don't know how much you could do that. You I probably wish. can't sit no, still. Look, I, I, <laughs> it's conceptually, it sounds good. I have not yet done it. No, but when it came to pretty much the 10 year mark, um, we brought yeah. in a new CEO uh, and the plan is essentially to uh, run an IPO and run towards an IPO. And um, I took a break and then in the summer started a new company. So we're probably eight months into, into the new venture. Uh, but but previously you'd also asked me about the kind of this scale up journey in your last question of, oh, of what yeah. that was like. It was um, for me fundamentally value creation comes down to the team and the what set us apart from everyone else because it was relatively competitive at the time was fundamentally the team. And so my uh, so our, our sort of other co-founder Eamon, he was he, he he did a lot of heavy lifting on the operations side but together we focus a lot on the team and read about what makes a great culture we were involved in interviewing every single person who joined um and constantly recognize that as the most important thing essentially who you're hiring and having a really really good process for that starting with what problem is it that you're looking to solve and what kind of profile do you need and then drawing in advisors or, or experts or uh, the best is usually other founders who've gone through it to, to help with that. Then once they're on board, how can you develop them? How can you help them do their life's best work and enjoy it more than any other career they've, 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 or job they've done in the past and um, contribute more than they ever have? And, and how do you do that? And ensuring that the culture is strong, the norms and habits and what makes it ultimately for people to, to want the company to achieve its mission um, beyond Every single person is a shareholder or share option holder and then ultimately a shareholder. 
uh, how, what are all the things that are possibly doable that we can do to make sure this is, as, is not just an incredible team, but the best culture that we can get to. Um, and it was a really good decision to, to do it that way. And that's because A, we enjoyed working there ourselves because of that. But B, it meant that we were able to attract like some of the best talent from across the world that ultimately helped us build um, the best products. Awesome. Yeah, so value creation comes down to the right team. And yeah, and so there's two big pieces to that that you're, that you're outlining. The first piece is getting the right hires. And then the second piece is having the right culture when they're on the job, making sure that everyone can be making the big impact that they want to be making, just like you did um, when you started off creating a startup from the very beginning. Um, super cool, Hussein. So, uh, this company that you're working on now, um, I understand it's in the creator economy sector. You're still in stealth, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you're up to. Get us excited. Um, so I can tell you about the problems in that I've I kind of, as, as you, and as almost all of your listeners, um, we have an appreciation for, um, alternative media podcasts, YouTube, and everything else. So I've, I've been a, a, a kind of a consumer of that content as, as anyone else has been. Um, back in 2007, just before I started university, I did a 30 part series for my high school and college around helping people get into university and like sort of pass exams. So recognizing the power of YouTube uh, early on and being a fan since. But then when 2015, 2016, 2017 were pretty key for me. And then I kind of, at that time, I had this perspective that machine learning AI, like it's great. The world's becoming a better place. It's all going to be rosy from now on. <laughs> Just to exaggerate. And then a series of things uh, happened that were, were uh, like a blind spot to, to, to be like, if I'm looking back, it, there were blind spots. A big part of that was uh, elections across the world and, and sort of characters coming in that you right. would have never thought would have would have come in and then right. recognizing because of this deeper understanding of the power of data and machine learning and so on recognizing that everyone celebrates the social media platforms but there are certainly downsides and not mm -hmm. only are these downsides bad but if you just extrapolate of where it's headed we're headed into a pretty um dark place so right. the problem for me ultimately was one of the media uh, and how uh, it has problems and issues that need to be resolved. In parallel, I had my own view and thesis around consumption of media can be thought of in two two ways. The way I look at it is like the more view count world, and then there's more what I call like repeatable world. View count world is epitomized by TikTok and behind that Instagram, behind that Facebook, typically, where you take you want to go to that content. It's typically humor or entertainment. We all do it, and it's good, and it has a, has its place. But broadly speaking, like distraction and switching off. Whereas the other side of the spectrum, uh, we look at repeatable world content, meaning exactly like your podcast, where you may have relatively fewer viewers or listeners, still often tens, if not hundreds of thousands, but who come back week after week, often for for many years. Right, and those right, categories right. is typically more guru learning. Um, hobbies and so on, and that they are somewhat underserved and that these algorithms are heavily disproportionately uh, geared towards view count world and pushing up um, viral content, especially right. helping new viewers come as a result of the, their algorithms. But those same right. algorithms are disproportionately 
um, adversely affecting the repeatable world content. Right. And then the repeatable world content, usually promotion and getting new viewers or listeners comes as a result of true fans telling their friends and peers or other similar content creators sharing sharing what you're doing. So what we're doing is, is essentially helping address that, bringing a more effective monetization and distribution approach to video content creators in particular in the repeatable world and offering them the tech infrastructure to be able to do that. Nice. Well, you're preaching to the choir right here, Hussein. <laughs> right, right, right in our wheelhouse. Uh, this, Absolutely. Yeah, this is music to my ears because I definitely, you know, I experienced this where, you know, we have this podcast, most listen to podcast in the data science industry. And so that's great. But I think to myself, well, how could we be getting more exposure? And it doesn't, you know, we do get a little bit more exposure through YouTube algorithms. Um, uh, and I think a lot of new exposure comes when people Google data science podcast, we come up first. And so then they're likely to consider us. Um, but we don't we don't benefit in the same way that uh, viral content does. So because we're in that um, second camp you described, the repeat content uh, camp, where it's amazing, we do have listeners like like you, listener, listening right now, <laughs> um, who some of you have been around for many years and you listen to every episode. And so it means that every episode, it's really consistent in terms of the number of listeners. Um, so you have to look like month over month or quarter over quarter to see changes in listenership. Um, whereas with the algorithms and viral content, so like, you know, stuff that a YouTube algorithm or TikTok algorithm favors, you end up having these singular pieces of content that do incredible. Um, and yeah, we're just not really, we're not, we're not making content like that. We're not making like viral content. We're not trying to be like clickbaity. <laughs> we're just trying to give you a consistent, you know, two shows a week. And on my YouTube channel, my personal YouTube channel, one video tutorial a week, every single week. And we hope that people like stay committed and stay on. And so like you're saying, your word of mouth can be a big thing. You know, people on social media saying, uh, I just listened to this amazing episode of the Super Data Science Podcast. Um, I learned this incredible thing and I've been listening to the show for years. I highly recommend it. That's, I think that's one of the primary drivers of how we grow is this word of mouth, as you say. So um, I do, I understand the problem you're describing very intimately. And yeah, I'm excited to see what you're up to and how it resolves this. Um, can you give us a little taste or should we just, we should just save it until launch time? Taste as, yeah. So we're just under 20 people. The majority are uh, engineers, coders, programmers working away, um, on our prototype. We are, uh, in beta <laughs> with, uh, about I love that you, you, creators. you've been doing this for less than a year and you already have 20 people, mostly developers working on it yeah you couldn't yeah. you couldn't stand gardening you needed to do something that's, that's what i said the gardening just sounds so good but i <laughs> you, you, i do there is a concept of like a founder problem fits and you know spending 10 years on this uh on solving like the identity problem i know it has to be something that drives you that's over and above and um, what's normal so you in an un unhealthy way you have to become a little bit obsessed about solving it um and the problem was so bizarre, like so terrible, because I didn't see how it's broken and needs to be fixed. And that was like a drive to, to, to work and make it happen. 
that same level of energy and excitement holds for this problem that we as a team are working on. And I think that's really, really important. So when I um, knew, I, it was quite clear to me that this is a problem that needs to be solved. And I've just been working on, on figuring out how, as opposed to thinking about what industry should come next. It was kind of natural for me after a break that um, whatever it is ends up being, it would be towards addressing this problem because I see it as a, like, personally, uh, as a, like, a very fundamental issue. Uh, the way that so, the, the social media <laughs> platforms um, could have a, a, an adverse impact on the world. So what was your break, like a three-day weekend? <laughs> N- well, this is a thing, actually. The reason why I was able to go for like 10 years pretty well, and I'm, I'm sure this gig I'm setting aside like two, tw- 20 years, is because you got to pace it that this is not a, a sprint. It really is a marathon. Right. So you'd be surprised. Right. I actually do a relatively normal five days a week. Um, kind of 8 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. It's not like crazy uh, that, that you might get. It's far worse in the city in sort of financial institutions. Uh, and I spend half a day on one of the weekends. And that's pretty much it. And that sustains for the whole year. I take about two weeks off. Um, but, but I do it because I, I genuinely don't necessarily see it as work. I absolutely love what it is that I do, especially because I work with like incredible people. Uh, and that all helps. That all really, really helps. Cool. That's it's nice to hear that you have that kind of balance. I've got to got to find a way to get more balance, uh, and I I could see how by by not burning the candle at both ends in particular days or particular weeks, over the long run, you're more focused and more productive anyway. Um, and so yeah, I've got to get some more of that balance in my life. You're saying um, so. Now that now that you have this uh, this second startup running, do you have like a particular process for deciding on what startup opportunity to go with, or both of these opportunities on Fido with um, credit and identity, and then now with your stealth startup and the creator economy, um, were you just like intuitively this is the biggest problem that I could be tackling right now? Or do you have a kind of like an exhaustive process that you go through before you go um, headfirst into the opportunity? So um, it doesn't, as far as biggest problem, it doesn't necessarily have to be the biggest problem, uh, but it has to be what what I see as the most important. And it just happens to be fortunate that identity was a global problem and this sort of... um, content video content consumption is a global um sort of size as well and it helps when it's you're, you're dealing with a global or something that has the potential to be large on a number of fronts the first thing is when you hire people you can say look we're working on a project or a mission that can be global therefore it's like super impactful and therefore um you'd get a real kick out of building something that can be big that that's part of it the second part of it is you're able to get more investments to to be able to run fast and sort of win in essence. So there are those sides to it, but um, I do have a very strong appreciation for for quality. I know that in the Bay Area, there's this obsession with like release and iterate or run fast, break things, whatever. Uh, that's not the way I've seen it nor see it because in this day and age, the consumer pretty much gives you one shot. You got one shot to impress. And if you don't do that, they don't care that you're going to iterate. Like you really need to do a good job. So I have, uh, the reason why we're kind of taking our time and doing it organically, despite like 
um, this being a fast-paced world is because for me, if it's slow, steady, and done properly, that's worth a ton more than running fast. And like, you know, the story with fast from uh, a month ago and, and other stories, um, really, I'm sure, hardworking team and everything, but just they're not getting the timing and the pacing right. And sometimes it's undue influence from investors in particular. And ultimately, like the founder is a, is a decision maker. They should be setting the pace and they should work to align everything else around that, not have um, you know, more investors wanting to invest or different components, more team members wanting to join or whatever it may be, setting the pace. Like the pace should be, you should be in the driving seat, not being driven by um, the need for speed as such. That's that cool confidence that you exude that I love so much. <laughs> that's it. And the, that's, there, that's it in space right there where you're like, yeah, we got to get this product right. We're going to be disciplined about working on it consistently getting to getting it to a point where we can grow it organically and we're not going to bow to pressure from uh from the outside uh to rush this thing and and risk not impressing our consumers on that one first shot that we get i love that hussein i, I do see it in a, in a very binary way and um, if there's just one other thing when when i'm speaking with and learning from other founders is for me it's, it's very very clear cut your pre-product market fit stage your product market fit stage and then your scale up stage where and it's just each one is a is a very clear binary progression to the next where you're now getting more pre-product market fit stage companies but investing and growing as like like scale ups and you know you have three right. four hundred people but you don't even have product market fit like that doesn't help anyone right. it doesn't get, help you necessarily get there faster if anything it's going to slow you down Yep. But this, this wasn't really an option 10 years ago, right? 10 years ago, you couldn't do this. Like you would not get investment unless you had strong product market fit. Like, it was, it was, um, in some ways, 10 years ago, it was much harder to get investment. But the oh, discipline definitely. that led to startups and scale ups coming out meant they were stronger. Um, which is, which is a change in the last 10 years. Yeah, there's just so much money flowing now into with the uh, in this low interest rate world that we're in. Um, though that might change in 2022, the low interest rate world that we've been in for over a decade until now um, means that everybody's looking for yield, and so you have big hedge funds, big institutional managers that are saying, "Oh, look over there; these uh, these VC firms are getting yield above zero. <laughs> so let's." Put a bunch of money over there and so um i was reading a stat i can't remember the number but it was something like 600 billion don't quote me on this listener but something like 600 600 billion dollars flowed into um machine learning tech startups in 2021 and that was double the amount in 2020. Um, so the double you can quote me on <laughs> the exact number don't quote me on, but um, uh, so when there's that much money flowing in, if you're a VC and you've got this giant pool of money that you're expecting to deploy over a certain time span, you've got to put it somewhere. And so you end up having a situation that you're describing where pre-product market fit companies are getting scale up level investment and um, yeah, it could lead to a rocky few years. Maybe they'll get lucky, but maybe they won't. Super cool to get that perspective, Hussein. So, all right, so now we have some idea of how you think about 
the opportunities that you tackle. We've heard a lot about your founding team um, with Onfido. So how Amen was key for operations and Rahul was key for technology. So do you have a, a process or rules of thumb for choosing your co-founding team? Um, I'd say a co-founder, when I speak with other like founders or co-founders thinking through this process, it ought to be seen as, again, like it's very much a binary thing. If someone's a co-founder versus a very senior employee or like an incredible team member employee. Whereas a, a, the reason why it's binary is like a co-founder is, is all in by every definition, meaning they do, there is a trade-off to be had. They will have shorter weekends. They will have fewer holidays. Um, they will lose sleep if the money is going to run out or if there's like a, some sort of fire and some, some part of the organization. Uh, they will have to lead by example and, 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 and the rest of it. Um, and they have to be able to be, uh, to, to, to learn and go through a very quick learning process quite rapidly. So with all that said, um, that whole process of whether uh, someone is, becomes a co-founder or not should be thought about very, very carefully. Because I, I I do I do understand that this this emphasis around I'm like I'm, I'm I don't necessarily have a lot of experience myself. Let me bring someone in. They're only going to join if they get the co-founder title. So there's this urge, or it's, it's or other titles like a senior title. There's this urge to promising stuff and then having it work. But it is such a consequential decision that it should be thought of um, really really carefully. Having said that, for for someone who's doing it the first time. Um, having just gone through that for 10 years, it, I would not have been able to do it without my co-founders. And you really need to be very well aware of your skill set and crucially what you're not good at and make sure you have complementary or one or two or three co-founders and make sure you're, you're all super complementary and very different to each other so that you collectively combine the, make it as a kind of a, the full package. So with all that said, um, if you don't have the full package and if you're a first time or like new, I would recommend a co-founding team. Just like think about it really, really carefully. And, um, if you, unless you have like that perfect match, don't rush into any sort of co-founding relationship unless you're absolutely sure, because this should not be thought of as like, this is a really good, this is my best senior team member. Let me make them a co-founder because it's just not going to be like that. Awesome. Great advice. Um, all right. So Hussein, you've already had this tremendous success scaling up an AI startup and now you're onto your second startup. You are generally a wise and worldly person. So I think that this question will be an interesting one, um, for you to, to answer. So, um, in you know, in the decade, in the past decades, and presumably for the decades to come, there's been ever cheaper data storage, ever cheaper compute, ever more abundant sensors. There's been uh, unprecedented interconnectivity between people and more and more people on the planet connected to each other every year. Um, and lots of modeling innovations, data modeling innovations, as well as, um, you know, DevOps, uh, cloud innovations, accessibility to um, scaling up machine learning models and technology platforms in general. So every year, the pace at which technology changes increases. 
So given this, and given that you're still relatively early on in your entrepreneurial career, what excites you about the future? There is a, if anything, it is now that potential to start something and for it to go global is, is exists. Just, just that same feeling that me and the, my, the other sort of my two co-founders had in 2008, um, now holds and in fact holds more than it ever has ever in history. Um, now there's just a lot more, um, investments or capital available to, to be invested in developing mm-hmm. things. And whereas, you know, 10, 15 years ago, if it would have taken 10 years for a company to be global, now you increasingly have that being a shorter time scale. Um, three years, five years, something can go from zero to essentially having a, 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 an impact globally in a very, very quick and, and short period of time. So that is that, that your question is what is exciting? That in itself is very exciting. In parallel, there can be negatives with that. Naturally, you know, if, if you don't have product market fit, then scaling is kind of, um, doesn't necessarily get you product market fit. So there's that point mm-hmm. from earlier, but crucially, um, as and when there are technologies that are deployed and deployed quickly, and are, have, have a global foot reach in a red short amount of time. We all know how regulators can be slow in catching up. It's just the way it works. It's, um, they need to do a much better job of getting much closer to understanding technology. I'm sure and hopeful that you increasingly have regulators listening in on, on your podcast so that they're up to speed with the power of this technology and technologies like this. So that they understand there are so many upsides and benefits. Um, but there are downsides and like it's our uh, sort of job as a collective, both as whether it's on the academic side, practitioners, um, uh, policymakers, um, or often a bit of all, all of that to collectively work to put in guides, policies, rules, regulation, so that we make sure we maximize just like the good stuff and, and control the stuff can, can, that can adversely affect you. Because when you get to a state where in five or 10 years, we don't put a control on some of the, the risks on, on the adverse things. You can have a backlash. You know, there's been technological black, black backlashes in the past, which has celebrated advances in medicine, diagnosis. You know, I, we've just been talking about identity and, and what I've been sharing and all the, all the very many good things that can come as a result. Um, but not be, um, sort of just to remain mindful of the downsides and, and to work to, to minimize those. Nice. Well said and wise as I expected. All right, Hussein, this has been a tremendous journey getting to hear about your journey um, from the conception of Onfido to being a massive global successful company and then now onwards to your next big thing. Um, So starting to wrap up the episode, do you have a book recommendation for us? So I'm immersing myself with media and everything media related. So um, I just finished Hate Inc. It's uh, Matt mm. Taibbi. It just talks a bit about specifically news. It just does a. It seems like it does a quite a fair job, like criticizing CNN and Fox, and just talking through the issues. There's a political layer to it, but it's, it's, it's a bit deeper than that. Talking about how and why um, we, as sort of, whether you look at the U.S. Um, or in the U.K. 10 years ago, we, we kind of saw each other all as kind of the same. And now there's increasing like this tribalism problem. Um, this is a very good book. 
that helps go towards explaining some of the reasons why. Cool. That's a great recommendation and very on theme for topics we've been covering in this episode. I'm sure uh, listeners will reach for that book now. Um, so as I mentioned a number of times on the show, I have enormous respect for you. Always come away from conversations with you, uh, feeling more focused and refreshed uh, than before we started talking. And um, yeah, I also feel like you have tons of wisdom to impart all the time. So how can listeners follow you after this podcast? How can they continue to stay up to date on your latest thoughts? That's kind of you to say. I So I'm on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is um, at Hussein Kasai. Nice. We will include that in the show notes for sure. Thank you, Hussein, for taking time out of what is no doubt uh, your busy life as you uh, get going on this next stealth startup. We can't wait for that to be launched and hear more about it. Um, thank you so much for being on the program. And maybe we can catch up on the show again in a few years uh, to hear about how scaling up that startup is coming along. Absolutely. It's great. Great to have been on. Loved catching up with Hussein on air today. I hope you feel as grounded and inspired from hearing from him as I do whenever I talk to him. In today's episode, Hussein filled us in on how he conceived of Onfido as a firm to disrupt the 150-year-old credit footprint industry, how the value creation when scaling a company comes from hiring and retaining a great team, how the US market is often the key to winning the data race if you are developing a data-hungry AI platform, how he weighs the most important problem to solve is more important than the biggest problem to solve when deciding on a startup opportunity how it's key to develop your AI product at a slow and steady pace in order to find product market fit before accepting tons of venture capital for scaling up, and how a co-founder may be critical for you to shore up your own skill set gaps, but you shouldn't rush into bringing just anyone on as a co-founder as it's a big decision reserved only for those who are willing to lose a lot of sleep. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Hussein's Twitter profile, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 577. That's superdatascience.com slash 577. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. I also encourage you to let me know your thoughts on the episode directly by adding me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tagging me in a post about it. Your feedback is invaluable for helping us shape future episodes of the show. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Yvonne and Siebert, Mario Pombo, Serge Massis, Sylvia Ogvang, and Kirill Aramenko on the Super Data Science team for managing, editing, researching, summarizing, and producing another inspiring episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.